0: It was traditional that, apart from the rainy season, that the nuns and the monks would sort of travel around India and stop in different villages to talk and teach with the villagers. And there's a story that on one of these journeys to India, the Buddha stopped in a village with a group of nuns and monks with him. And one of the villagers came to the Buddha and he said, Why is it? That you're all so happy. And the Buddha said that because the nuns and the monks, because they have no regrets over the past, and because they don't brood over the future, and because they don't dwell anywhere in the present, that is why they are radiant. The Buddha spoke a great deal, a great, great deal about the happiness and the joy of being present. And that being present truly is a way of discovering a profound sensitivity, calmness, stillness, and well-being. It is true that he never, ever did once speak of this path as being a pathway of misery and discontent in the pursuit of further misery and discontent. So when we find ourselves in our own pathways, seemingly lost in misery and discontent, it is a time, actually, of questioning, you know, what is really meant by this path being a path of happiness that leads to profound happiness. Now not holding on no to regrets over the past. Really that is an encouragement to us or an invitation to us to let go of the world, the mental world of if only should the mental world of blame and guilt. The invitation not to hold on to regrets over the past is perhaps showing us the possibility of living in a way in which we are not really a prisoner of our own past, of our own history, or of the history of anyone else. The encouragement not to brood over the future is really what releases the heart. From that world of what-if, what-if, what might happen. The world of endlessly rehearsing the next moment, what is going to come in the next moment. Learning to let go of that future world is also really learning how to let go of anxiety and fear the encouragement not to dwell anywhere in the present is really the invitation to discover a way of being in which we are no longer submerged or lost or overwhelmed by the endlessly changing kaleidoscope of thoughts and feelings and sensations, but instead to discover a place of trust and confidence, and a place of refuge in the moment. It perhaps becomes, you know, maybe increasingly clear to us that really a life of profound sensitivity, of compassion, of happiness, it really begins with our willingness to bring a loving and clear attention to every moment. That it truly is that simple our willingness to bring a loving and clear attention to every moment. That this kind of attention is what really opens the door that allows us to be touched by the world. The world comes alive to for us when we are there for it. This loving and clear attention is also what enables us to touch the world with calmness and understanding. And it liberates us, too. It really frees us, perhaps, from those very familiar positions we can find ourselves in our lives where we're either feeling that we are succumbing to things or we're being overcome by them. You know, those extreme positions we find in our lives where we either feel that we get swept away by things, by thoughts, by events, by sensations, or else we're in that other extreme position where we're trying to overcome and overwhelm and control the events and thoughts and situations that we meet in our lives. When we can actually find that way of being present, when we're not lost in those extreme positions, when we can meet this moment, when we can welcome it as it is, when we can receive it with a loving and clear attention, then I think we really do begin to discover the ways in which this moment can really be a refuge for us, a sanctuary of peace and a vehicle of learning. Sometimes we think about being present. You know, we keep encouraging you all the time to do this in retreat. We've all been encouraged throughout our entire life of practice to be present. What does it mean? You know, sometimes we just take it for granted. Oh, yeah, I've got to be present. And yet we can interpret that really in totally different ways, can't we? What being present actually means. Sometimes we think of being present in this, in the context of being this kind of, uh, involving a sort of strenuous and heroic effort. You know, I'm going to be present. And we think about all the energy that might need for us, you know, and the ways in which we can become quite intense about being present, you know, as if we're suddenly going to get this breakthrough and know that we're present. I mean, has anybody ever had really that breakthrough, where you suddenly say, oh yes, I'm present. But sometimes, often not actually, but often we're making, have this idea about this heroic effort we have to make in order to cut through and transcend and get rid of and overcome. Everything that appears to get in the way of being present. And we often have that kind of dualistic thinking that this is getting in the way of being present. You know, some thoughts, some mind state, some memory, that it's getting in the way of being present. Sometimes we, we think of being present as a kind of onerous task, you know, a little bit like taking medicine that tastes terrible. But everybody's going to tell us that it's going to make us feel good. You know, I think, well, you know, I'm going to be, oh, I've got to be present again, you know. Even though actually our inclination might be really one of saying, present looks kind of dull. You know, my daydreams are much more interesting. My fantasies are much more interesting, you know. My, my rehearsals are much more interesting. Oh, and I've got to be present, you know. As if it's a kind of punishment. Of course, sometimes we are interested in being present, but that's mostly those times when our presence seems really exciting, doesn't it, you know? Something really exciting is going on, or something really dramatic, you know, or, you know, we're in touch with somebody we really care about, or we're about to begin something that's really exciting, or meditation is great, you know, then, oh yes, you know, then I really want to be present. I think being being present actually really doesn't have much to do with any of these approaches. You know, it's not a heroic task to be present. It's not an onerous task to be present. And being present certainly isn't about just those times that are filled with, you know, high uh, esoteric breakthroughs. No, I suspect that being present is actually much simpler and actually much kinder than any of these approaches. If we were all to reflect upon any time in our lives where there was a really deep sense of happiness and richness, you know, think about a time maybe you, you first fell in love with someone. You know, you probably didn't really need that much encouragement to be present. You know, nobody had to kind of remind you, come back, you know, come back, pay attention. Think of times actually, you know, perhaps when you've had really a most amazing kind of hike in nature, you know, where there's been just a really, just awe-inspiring sense of beauty and richness. Again, isn't it? We're just really present. Sometimes we've had those moments, you know, with the laugh or the cry of a child or the birth of a child or being with someone who's, who's very ill or dying. You know, we're present. It's simple. It's simple. Sometimes we've had those experiences and moments with ourselves. You know, you had that in your life where you can just sit and there's that feeling of completeness. It's really the mark of being present, isn't it? Of all those moments of being present, that sense of completeness. That there's nothing missing. We don't think, oh yes, it could be better if I just had a little more of that, or a little bit of different there, you know, It's slightly different person. It's that sense of, there's really nothing missing. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing is going to improve upon what is already there. Mostly those moments are not results of great and heroic effort, are they? They're mostly not a result of really trying hard and struggling to be present. Often they're not even products of some sort of dramatic renunciation. Mostly they're much simpler than that. Those moments of natural attentiveness reflect upon those moments of natural attentiveness where there's no desire to be anywhere but where we are. But there's no desire to have anything but what is happening in that moment. They are moments, in a way, where we're in love with the moment. We're kind of in love with that moment. They are moments, of course, that have that quality of true interest. We're really interested. We're curious we're connected, we are there. And all of those ingredients of interest, of curiosity, of passion almost, of love, they're almost like they are the foundations from which this kind of very natural attentiveness emerges. This is what mindfulness is. That's actually what mindfulness is. That's is what meditation is. That very natural attentiveness. Sometimes it takes us a while to figure that out. You know, that we don't have to try to get there so hard. Sometimes, actually, we have to learn to get out of the way of those moments of natural attentiveness. Now, those moments do occur in our lives, but sadly, often they feel to be very random moments, almost as if it's an accident. You may be walking outside. Suddenly we're present, and we wonder, how did I do that? How did I get there? And then sometimes those moments pass, and it's almost like we regret their passing, and we, we try to figure out a way or a prescription of how to get back to those moments, how to recapture them. And when they're not present, sometimes we project them into the future, you know, that they're going to happen when we manage to yet once more find a perfect moment. You know, the ideal conditions when we're going to be present. And I think sometimes when we think of the ideal conditions of being present, we think of them as being moments when we've got rid of all of these things that we call obstacles or distractions. Of course, the good news in mindfulness practice is that there is no such thing as a distraction. The things that we label as an obstacle or label as a distraction are most often the thoughts and the events and the circumstances that we find difficult to welcome, that we find difficult to accept. And sometimes instead of finding that place in ourselves, where we can really open our heart and accept and embrace what is taking place, it's easier, isn't it, to say, oh, this is an obstacle, or this is a distraction, and I need to get rid of it. We, I think it's helpful not to forget that the possibilities of natural attentiveness, of simplicity, of richness and happiness are present in every moment. And they don't just rely upon having good circumstances and pleasant experiences. But instead, those invitations to natural attentiveness rely much more upon our capacity to find that sense of interest. Notice when you're interested in something, there's no difficulty with energy. There's no difficulty with motivation, no difficulty with commitment. So first, it is almost this question of finding the ways to be truly interested. To be willing to learn. Now, I think being present has become something of a cliché in our culture, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like a mainstream mantra. You know, we hear all these encouragements to be here now, the joy of being present, to live one moment at a time, You know, if you go into a bookstore, you know, there's absolutely libraries of books that have been written about being present, about living in this moment. And, you know, we hear a lot of this information and all these exhortations and encouragement, and we've read the books, and we do indeed get the impression that a lot of people really do recommend being present. You know, this is a big recommendation in our culture, be present. And in our own hearts and minds, of course it sounds like a great idea. And yet it's also easy to have the sense that it is an idea for us. And that somehow there's an intuitive part of it that can feel missing. So we're trying, we're still trying to figure out what it means to be present. Now being present is actually much more than a technique. It's not a technique. Being present is also more than a prescription or a particular, yeah, particular prescription or formula that we follow. I think that being present actually involves quite a transformation of ourselves and particularly a transformation of our relationship to time and our relationship to events. The being present involves a transformation of our relationship to time and to events, to past and to future, and to what is occurring in each moment. Now, reflect upon the sense of being lost. A lot of people talk about this experience of being lost being lost. It's not an uncommon experience. We feel that we get lost in the past. You know, we have that experience of finding ourselves rehashing, rehashing and recycling endless stories and memories from the past. We find ourselves recycling guilt, and regret, and remorse over things that have gone by. We find ourselves replaying the same conversations and the same events that we have played a thousand times before. For example, reflect on all the thoughts you've had today. Has anyone had any new thoughts? Has anyone had even one new thought that you haven't thought before? I mean, this is really unusual for us, to have a thought that we haven't already thought before. It's so amazing, isn't it, how many times it can have the same thought over and over again. Sometimes we repeat, of course, experiences that have been painful, and we equally repeat stories and experiences that have been delightful. And often it's not as if we've invited these replays, have we? You know, it feels as if sometimes the past has a life of its own. It has a life of its own, a momentum of its own. Even when we think about our reactions, perhaps some of the reactions that you've had today, you know, maybe judging someone or having a towards something or, you know, that I want, I need to have another cup of tea, you know, I need to have my nap. How many of that, interesting, when we go through those motions, we see ourselves almost recycling these almost institutionalized responses within ourselves sometimes we feel lost in the future don't When people talk about being lost in the future we make very intricate plans about everything about what's going to happen when we leave this retreat we've already told our friends about our retreat told them everything how good it was or how bad it was for us we're still on the first day and yet we're already home We rehearse the things that are going to come afterwards in endless detail. We rehearse our interviews. Have you noticed the moment you see your name on an interview list? Well, how many of us just see it there and let it go, you know, and move on? Or how often they, oh, got to rehearse it. You know, what am I going to say? I got to find the right words. I'm going to make a good impression, not a bad impression. Should I tell them this? No, I won't tell them that. You know, they're kind of rehearsal. Oscar Wilde once said, the worst things in my life never happened. The worst things in my life never happened. But just in case they do, we want to be ready. So we've already gone through them all, haven't we? You know, what happens if we get terminally ill? What happens if this happens? If we lose our job, if our relationship breaks up? We're ready for everything. We can get, feel that we get lost in the present, you know, because we see the way, you know, in which a single thought or a single sensation quickly turns into a gothic novel, you know, or an epic movie, one thought, one sensation. We see the way that sometimes we feel we get lost in our evaluations, our comparisons, our speculations, our analyzing you think, where did that come from? Why is it here? How long is it going to last? When is it going to go away? At home I have this this coffee cup, and it, it's wonderful. The whole coffee cup is, is filled with these li- these words that begin with, the coffee smells good, should I have another coffee, cup of coffee? No, I've had too much coffee today. It makes me speedy, but if I don't have another cup of coffee, I'll fall asleep. And the whole cup is just this endless cycle of words around one smell. The truth is, we can't be lost in the past. That's the truth. We can't be lost in the past. Because the past is actually a series of events that have already gone by, of moments that have already ended. We can't actually be lost in the future, because it hasn't arrived. And the future is composed, essentially composed, of unknown moments that have yet to appear. Sometimes we feel that we are lost in the present, but what we are actually lost in is thought. We are not lost in the past. We are not lost in the future we are not lost in the present. Where we are actually lost is in thought, stories, dwellings. The Buddha once said that there is nothing that can harm us more than a thought unguarded, but that once understood that there is nothing that can be a greater friend to us not even our own father or mother. On an essential level, we are always present. Where else can we be? Where else can we be? Essentially, we are always present. And everything that appears can only appear in the present. But our way of being present can obviously vary enormously. Our way of being present can be saturated with all manner of tendencies and attitudes and projections and images that have been transferred from previous experiences, from the past, through holding. And this is the place of wise attention. This is the place of wise attention, of undoing that coloring. The habitual tendencies that flavor our meditation are, of course, exactly the same habitual tendencies that bring conflict and a very real sense of limitation and confusion to our lives. To use a different analogy, so suppose tomorrow morning, we came in here for the first sitting, and we suggested that instead of sitting this tomorrow morning, we were all going to go up on the moor and climb one of the biggest tors there, one of the biggest rock, rock constructions there. Now, would we all approach that climb in the same way? Imagine if we were all to go there. Would we all approach that climb in the same way? Probably not. There would perhaps be those among us who already came prepared for every eventuality. So they would turn up, you know, they'd have their hiking boots and their pitons and their climbing axes and their medical supplies and their parachute, you know, and a picnic already packed. They were ready. They were ready for everything. This is how they approached their lives. There would perhaps be those who would look at the, mat- look at the tour and say, no way. I mean, you know, no way am I even going to try that, you know. I'll just sit here and wait at the bottom for y'all to come back. <laughs> there would be those, of course, who would, you know, not even wait for the word go. You know, there would be one to be there first. You know, would yeah. be racing off, you know, the competition type, you know. They're already halfway up while everybody else is unpacking their boots. There would be those who, of course, who would get started with good intentions, you know, great intentions, yeah, I'm going to do this, they'd get halfway up, you know, they'd get caught by the view, oh, it's so beautiful up here. They'd forget about completing the journey, you know, they'd be stuck there. There would be those who wouldn't even get out of here, okay. We all bring ourselves to our meditation, don't we? And we see our life in our meditation. You know, this is not a special night. Here we are past the other evening. We see ourselves in our meditation, and we see our lives in our meditation. This is why it's called insight meditation. That's why it's called insight meditation, because we're not here about having neat experiences. We're here to understand our lives. We're not here to get rid of ourselves. We are here to understand really what moves us and where we can find freedom to also understanding where we find imprisonment. We see our lives in our meditation and the way that we approach this moment the way in which we approach this moment. And by looking at the ways in which we actually approach this moment, that's where the understanding of where freedom actually is. It doesn't lie somewhere else. You know, if we see that our approach to this moment is one of striving and intensity and impatience, if we see, you know, that's a moment to question what would serve us well. Perhaps what really serves us well, what really serves a sense of freedom within us, is really to have the sense of beginner's mind, of opening to what is, of letting go of control. It may be that we bring passivity and dullness, you know, as if we sit down and we're just really lucky if we happen to collide with a breath now and again. Mm -hmm. You know? It may serve us well to look at what is our intention in life? You know how much are we in touch with a real sense of clear intentionality about what we value and what we honor in this moment? None of these patterns that we bring to meditation prevent us from being present. Only death does that. As long as we are alive, there is nothing that can actually prevent us from being present. But what seems to prevent us from being present is perhaps the way that we are unconscious to some of this colouring that actually takes place. And perhaps being present is about cultivating being conscious instead of being unconscious. Really attending wisely, not just to this moment, but to who we are in this moment, and to how we are in this moment. It may be that as we explore that and examine that, that we actually really begin to discover the ingredients of transformation. Perhaps what we need, one person may need in this moment, is to really cultivate that capacity to let go. What another person needs is to cultivate the capacity for commitment. Another person may need the capacity for compassion or the capacity for clarity. Being present is about being able to learn. It's about being able to learn. It's not just some sort of passive state we hang out in, you know, as if there's a sort of 1969 and we're going with the flow you know and everything's cool you know being present is about our capacity to learn from what is right in front of us the buddha spoke about this as a fortunate attachment about being present as a fortunate attachment And he said, let not a person revive the past or on the future build her hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen moment. Let her know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows. No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus fully, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is she, or he, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. It is an unusual combination of words. You know, everywhere else the Buddha speaks about attachment, speaks about attachment as being a path of suffering, as a path of unhappiness, and that what we are attached to, we are also imprisoned by. And he often, so often, speaks about letting go and relinquishing attachment. But here, speaks about a fortunate attachment. Why? No, what is what is it that about being present, about being awake, that makes it something a fortunate attachment, something to be treasured, something to be honored and valued, really above all else? It is really because being present is really the moment, the only moment we can be awake the only moment we can deepen in and learn through, the only moment that we can transform. But being present is about being unconditional, with the pleasant and the unpleasant, the challenging and the easy, recognising that every single thing that we need for sensitivity, for letting go, for understanding, is held in this very moment is held within this very moment. Every moment is enough. It is enough. So I mentioned the first evening when we often just speak the Buddha said that upon goodness of heart is built, built wise attention. And upon wise attention is built profound and liberating understanding. Wise attention teaches us how to touch the moment. It also teaches us how to be in touch with our own being. As we are in touch with the moment, and as we are in touch with our own being, then we also become increasingly aware of the ways in which we depart from this moment. Not saying that we shouldn't depart from this moment, but understanding the ways that we do depart from this moment. Where we go and what is happening. As we cultivate wise attention, I think that's something that we become aware of. And what we become aware of is the way in which there can be almost a functioning of two parallel realities in each moment. Now, one reality, one of the realities that is about each moment is composed, of course, of the events and the changes, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the touches, really that we all share. You know, it's not just one person in this room who hears the birds, is it? We all share the birds. We all share, you know, being here in this moment. We share the wind. We share the light. We share the sun. We share the rain. We share having bodies. We share having thoughts. This is a reality. This is what composes the reality of each one of us. Within all of those events that compose the reality of each one of us, there's that which is pleasant, that which is unpleasant, that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but seems quite neutral. Now, running us alongside this reality that we all share in and participate in, there's another reality, isn't there? Or another sense of reality. And that's our personal reality, the reality of our personal world, our inner world, which is perhaps unique to each one of us. For example, I have absolutely no idea what you do when you sit. Not a clue. I hope that's good news for you. (laughs) Equally, you have no idea what I do when I sit. (laughs) Not a clue. I mean, you can look fantastic, don't you? We notice that, you know, you can look absolutely fantastic. You know, inwardly of course there can be total chaos, you know, and shopping and, you know, dinner menus and <laughs> people somebody can look really sloppy when they sit. They welcome to this world of peace and calmness. But the truth is that you are the only one who knows your personal reality. And no one can know it for you. No one else can know it for you. Now, that personal reality, of course, can be very, very different than the world that we all share, because here we find likes and dislikes. We find aversion and grasping. We find judgment and memory and association. It's like if you took, you know, a group of people out to the front lawn and said, Oh, you know, what do you think about this? You know, a child would see a playground. You know, a conservationist would be concerned about how we're protecting the wildlife. If you were, you know, a builder, you might think, oh, yeah, you know, extend over there a few could you know. That's our personal reality. The way that we interpret and evaluate the world around us. Now, within that personal reality, there are the ingredients that make the link between past, present, and future. Within that personal reality, there are the, the ingredients that lead us to feel disconnected and separate and apart from this universal reality that we all share with. Our personal world and the universal world, sometimes they're realities that run in harmony, aren't they? You know, and we know those moments. <laughs> you know, those are the moments when a sound is just a sound, and a sight is just a sight, and a thought is just a thought. There's harmony there. That's how we know our personal reality and universal reality are running parallel and in harmony because there is peace. And we also know when our personal reality is not in harmony with universal reality because there is not peace, because there is disharmony and struggle. Those moments when we feel pretty separate and lost, you know, when we hear a sound and we think, God, you know, why don't we get rid of all these birds' nests here? You know, I'm really disturbing my meditation. You know, I'm going to be able to sit when the person beside me stops, stops swallowing, you know. Oh, you know, oh, you know, that smell I remember when I fell in love in that Italian restaurant, you know, and oh, you know, the, the rain, you know, oh, this is England, you know, never get good weather. Really. We know those moments when we have departed. Because there is disharmony. The personal reality is one of course when through interpreting and evaluating we have a position where things seem to happen to us. Isn't that interesting? When we live in harmony with a universal reality, it doesn't seem that things happen to us, they happen. They happen. When we live in our personal reality, things seem to happen to us. And then of course we want things to happen to them. For example, we say, Oh, you know, I got all this stream of terrible thoughts, you know, the of this is invading me. Oh, I have to do something about it. We say, Oh, you know, the birds are really distracting me, I'm gonna get a ladder and knock the rest out of the trees. If things happen to us so we react against them. That is a sign of a place where actually we have become lost in our interpretation of the way things are. What we often get introduced to in that sense of evaluating and interpreting, interpreting, we often get introduced not only to the commentaries of our mind, but the judgments. And the judgments are always rooted in the past. The judgments are always rooted in the past. When we meet the commenting and judging mind, of course, we meet our inner terrorist, and the countless ways we can terrorize ourselves. See that? Oh, what a crummy thought to have. See that? I've got to have a better thought in the next moment. If I was more loving, if I was more generous, if I was more compassionate, if I was more spiritual, if I was holier, I wouldn't have thoughts like this, I wouldn't have experiences like that. The inner terrorist tells us that we are never good enough and therefore this moment is never good enough. And of course, when we see that, we can even be you know, inspired to terrorize ourselves more by saying, oh, I'm so judgmental. I shouldn't be so judgmental. You know, if I was less judgmental, I would be much happier. But in doing that, of course, we perpetuate that cycle, and in perpetuating the cycle, we are perpetuating the past. Are we present in those moments of judgment and interpretation? On one level, yes. Physically, we touch the earth. On another level, it's hard to have a sense of being present, because we are struggling. Now, how do we find a way to stop struggling? One way, we get really interested in that which we are struggling with. Rather than feeling we have to fix it or get rid of it or get over it, we get really interested in what we're struggling with. Then we're attentive. We're suddenly just quite just like that. Just like that. If we're interested, we are attentive. If we're interested, we don't have any enemies, we don't have any opponents, we don't have any distractions, we don't have any obstacles. We have that which we are interested in. And we are connected and we're present. And feel the energy that comes with that. It doesn't matter whether it's a sore knee, whether it's a state of dullness, whether it's, you know, the, the tendency to dwell, the moment we are actually interested, rather than feeling, I've got to get rid of it, get over it, we are present. And there is energy that is the capacity to learn. We learn to take the my out. We learn to take this whole notion out of this is happening to me. And instead, we cultivate the sense of what is actually happening. What is actually happening? This is where we find understanding. You know, one of the older uh, translations in the English language, or one of the older meanings in the English language of the word understand, is to step under or to stand under to step under, or to stand under. And there's a poem I'd like to read to you in closing called The Waterfall, which is about understanding and the process of learning. It says, understanding requires putting yourself in a position to be taught by, to learn from, to experience, to be affected and changed, to be humble to stand under, not to be aloof, different, superior, separate, high up, out of reach, remote, or professionally untouchable. To understand is to be drenched and washed and flowed over by. It is to take the form of the other, to give your form away, and in yourself to assume the form of the other. So that you can be informed thereby. It is to become a pupil. It is to care enough to give the other power. If We have a couple of moments, extended.: Thank you for listening.